Yeah, the, the inflation was the the big bad beast of 2022. That really was the impetus for all of the the market chaos. I mean, without inflation, the Fed doesn't hike rates aggressively. The economy doesn't um, artificially slow. So really, in stocks don't don't drop as much as they do. So really, the the big bad beast that caused all the pain in 2022 was inflation. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome to 2023 and the first hypergrowth investing episode of the new year. We are back after a little holiday break. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, happy new year. Welcome back. How was your holidays with the family? Yeah, happy new year, Aaron. Happy new year, and uh, happy early birthday to you as well. I know we got a birthday <laughs> in two days. So happy early birthday. I appreciate it. Um, uh, the holiday was great, man. It was, it was fantastic. Um, uh, I think I read that San Diego was the warmest place in all of America, continental America on Christmas day. It was like 81 degrees here. So yeah, absolutely joyous. But then, then it, um, proceeded to rain uh, in the back mm. half of that holiday week and, and shut down a lot of the outdoor activities you can do here. So um, it was it was good. It was good. I had, had a great time. Enjoyed the family. Um, did a lot of fun stuff. Um, yeah, it was it was a good time. How was your your break, Aaron? It was good. Uh, low key, spent some time with some friends and just kind of caught up on some of the stuff that's just been laying by the wayside since I had some free time. Yes, that is that is what we use off time to do. Get get those things done that we we don't want to get done in in our regular uh, hours. So <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, I am looking forward to kicking off 2023 right in just a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, automation, clean energy, artificial intelligence, EVs, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get hypergrowth investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. Luke, with us off for two weeks, I wanted to start the new year off with some of your biggest predictions going into 2023. I recently mm-hmm. saw that you put out a research note detailing your 10 biggest predictions for the stock market in 2023. So I figured we'd spend some time today going over those predictions point by point. Now, we all know that 2022 was a rough year for the market. I'm sure a lot of our viewers and investors overall are excited to leave it behind and are looking forward to what the 2023 markets have to offer. You surmise that while it may start off a little choppy, that by the end of next year, the markets will be significantly higher. With all that in mind, I want to go point by point on how you foresee the route towards that overall market improvement could potentially take place. Starting off with uh, prediction number one, inflation. You believe that inflation will crash much faster than everybody thinks. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yeah, the, the inflation was the the big bad beast of 2022. That really was the impetus for all of the, the market chaos. I mean, without inflation, the Fed doesn't hike rates aggressively. The economy doesn't um, artificially slow. So really, in stocks don't, don't drop as much as they do. So really, the the big bad beast that caused all the pain in 2022 was inflation. And 
I think the Fed's rate hikes are are working. I think the path they've taken is is the right path, and it is successfully reining in inflation. Today, we just got another reading um, confirmation from the um, S&P Global uh, Manufacturing PMI from December that showed that economic activity in the manufacturing sector in the U.S. economy is slowing dramatically and that demand destruction is resulting in, in price pressure significantly easing. So we got another data report there showing inflation is crashing. Um, and then we're also getting assistance uh, as a result of demand destruction, but we're also getting assistance from uh, from commodity prices, that the commodity markets are reading the tea leaves and seeing that the global economy is slowing, seeing that there is demand destruction here and more on the horizon and commodity prices are are falling. Um, natural gas prices today, for example, first day of the new year, first trading day of the new year are off 10%. And now natural gas is trading below four bucks. Um, so that is pretty much, that is collapsing back into the ranges in which natural gas prices traded throughout the 1990s and 2010s. Um, we're below where we were before the um, Russian invasion of Ukraine. So natural gas prices have come full circle. They spiked after that invasion. They kind of petered out at, at those highs and have come crashing back down. And now we full circled back to below uh, where we were before the invasion. And we're only, you know, a couple cents away from that range that we were in in the 2010s and, and 1990s. And during the 1990s and 2010s, inflation averaged about 2 to 3%, 0 to 3%. Actually, if you consider the 2010s, we had a lot of 0, 1%, 2% reading. So natural gas prices, oil prices, um, food prices, they're, they're all collapsing in the futures market. They're collapsing to levels that are consistent with zero to three percent inflation um existing home sales are are dropping dramatically home price growth is slowing dramatically home prices are expected to moderate here in in 2023 that will significantly help with inflation rents are starting to plateau and actually coming down in certain cities that will help with inflation um so we're seeing across the board disinflationary pressures are building significantly. Inflation has already peaked and it's coming down. I think that's going to continue. I think it's going to happen at a much faster pace than a lot of people are expecting. And I believe that throughout the course of 2023, uh, inflation is going to fall very, 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 very quickly. And that is a positive for stocks because historically speaking, when inflation crashes, stocks tend to rally because Every time inflation crashes, treasury yields go lower, which gives room for P multiples to expand. So inflation drops equal P multiple expansions and P multiple expansion should help stocks in 2023. So, yeah, I think inflation is really going to come off here over the next few months. So probably around April is when you're going to say we're not going to be talking about inflation anymore. Well, I mean, the media is lagging. The media is always lagging. So I don't know when we're going to stop. I'm at us. Talking. I'm at us. Forget the media. Yeah. We're, we're, when we're going to stop talking about it. I, I don't think so. Cause I think at that point in time, we're going to be talking about disinflation. Okay. And so I, I really think as much as everybody talked about inflation in 2022, everyone is now going to be talking about disinflation in 2023. And I think that switch is probably going to happen around February, March time when these inflation readings really start crashing and coming in lower. I mean, they really already are, but it's not the headline CPI readings and PPI readings that are crashing. It's the leading indicators of that. The, the manufacturing surveys, the services surveys, the price gauges, those things are really crashing. 
people don't really talk about those, you know, and out on on Main Street. They talk mm-hmm. about the headline CPI, though. That's going to start crashing over the next few months. And I think that's when the conversation shifts from inflation to disinflation slash recession. I don't think people are going to be worried about inflation in 2023. They're going to be worried about a recession. All right. Uh, prediction number two, the Fed will pause rate hike rate hikes much sooner than everyone thinks. Right. Exactly. So that I mean, this is just this is just the cycle. This is the economic cycle. Ever since we set up the central bank to control economic cycles, this is what happens. The economy gets super hot. Inflation goes super high. Then Fed starts to raise rates aggressively. Economy slows. Inflation crashes. Unemployment rises. Fed pauses and then Fed cuts. Right. So this is just the cycle. And we are in the middle of the cycle. So we're in the part of the cycle where inflation is now starting to crash. The economy is starting to slow. Unemployment's going to rise. So all that sets the stage for a pause on Fed rate hikes in 2023. And I think that comes in early 2023. I think the last Fed rate hike in the cycle will happen in February, which is sooner than what the futures market is pricing in. So that that's what I see happening. And I think that's extremely bullish for stocks because – Here's the thing about about rate hike cycles. Fed pauses, when the Fed stops hiking rates, Fed pauses are systematically bullish for the stock market. Every single time going back to 1970 that the Fed pauses a rate hike cycle, stocks proceed to rally and they rally quite significantly oftentimes. But when the Fed starts to cut, that's the bad sign. Because when the Fed pauses, that simply means that's the Fed acknowledging we've done enough to stop inflation and we don't need to do any more. It's not the Fed acknowledging that the economy is falling over itself. It's just the Fed acknowledging that they've won the inflation fight. But when the Fed starts to cut, that's the Fed acknowledging that the economy is starting to fall over itself and that the economy needs assistance. So the Fed pause is bullish. The Fed pivot, like the Fed starts to cut rates, that's actually bearish because it's the Fed firing a warning shot to everybody saying the economy needs our help. So typically what happens is Fed pauses are always bullish for stocks. Fed pivots to rate cuts, it's a mixed history. Sometimes mm-hmm. stocks rally, sometimes they go flat, sometimes they fall. There is no clear signal from a Fed pivot that you can read from, from a Fed going from not hiking to cutting. But there is a clear signal from the Fed going from hiking to pausing, and that signal is always bullish. So I believe that when the Fed pauses its cycle in early February, that is going to be when we start to get a big 12-month upturn in stocks, and that starts a big breakout of, you know, I think on the order of 20 to 30 percent for the markets uh, throughout uh, 2023. Is there a scenario where they pause and then begin to raise again? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. If they pause and all of a sudden everything gets a lot better and demand destruction becomes demand creation and we start to see all these, you know, demand drivers flood back into the market and inflation gets reaccelerated, then yes, the Fed would then start to raise again and that would be bad for for the stock market and bad for the economy. But typically that does not happen. 
Typically, and I don't think it's going to happen with this Fed. Yeah. I think this Fed in particular, Powell has made it abundantly clear he does not want to repeat the mistakes of the 70s. So the mistakes of the 70s were that the Fed called victory on inflation far too early. That we had this inflation spike in 1973, 74, started to come off in 75, 76. And, you know, inflation only dropped to about 5% during that era. But the Fed called victory. The Fed said, we did it. We brought inflation down from, I think it was about 11% to 5%. That's big disinflation. They called victory. They started cutting rates. And then, boom, inflation went crazy again. Powell does not want that mistake to be repeated because what that led to is inflation becoming entrenched for about eight years. And then Volcker had to bring a big hammer to the party and raise rates to 20 percent, do some crazy things that have never been done before and have never been done since to the economy in order to fix the inflation problem. So Powell does not want to get to that point. And he's made it very clear in his press conferences that he does not want to get to that point. So he is not going to prematurely cut rates. I think he is going to pause and keep rates. And he, he said he's going to do this. They're going to pause and keep rates at an elevated level for a long time. So a lot of the futures market is pricing in almost a, a, a pretty quick reversal. So the Fed is going to hike rates, pause only for a few months, and then start cutting. And I don't see that happening. I think what they're going – because in that situation, once they start cutting, that's really when you start re-stimulating demand. Because you have to understand a pause is not stimulating to demand. A pause simply means we are no longer restricting demand. Once you start cutting, then that means you start adding chips back onto the table. You start adding demand chips back onto the table. So cuts are stimulative of demand, and cuts can therefore be stimulative of inflation. But pauses are not. And so that's why I think what the Fed is going to do this time around, based on what Powell has said and based on the fact that he is very adamant, he does not want to repeat the mistakes of the 70s, is there, I think they're going to pause in February and they're just going to stay there for a very, very, very long time. Probably longer than 12 months, maybe 16, 18 months. It's all going to depend on the incoming economic data. But I think they're going to stay on cruise control at 25, 50 basis points above where they are today for a prolonged period of time, which will essentially keep inflation from reaccelerating in the way it did in the 70s. And yeah. I think they're going to stay at that level until inflation comes all the way back down to 2%. And then they may, they may even not at that point, but they may then start to cut rates. But I think, I think Powell knows what he's doing. I, I think they've learned from their mistakes in the past, they being the Fed. And I think that they are on the right course here where it's going to be hike, pause, keep it there until inflation really comes down to 2% and then reassess. But I don't think they're going to prematurely cut because they don't want to repeat the 70s. Last question on this point. Is there, what does the scenario look like if they just continue to raise? Uh, I, you know, I think that situation is so, so unlikely. I mean, mm -hmm. they, they, see, they see the data and they see continuing claims, uh, unemployment claims are, are rising dramatically. They see uh, all these headline firing announcements. They see um, treasury yields coming in pretty significantly. They see inflation readings coming down significantly. So um, they're not dense. They're not dumb. These are very smart people. They know the data. They see the data. They understand the data. There is, to me, there is not a reasonable situation wherein they continue to hike rates aggressively. And if they do, I just think that's going to bring about the end of inflation much more quickly.
that we we okay. could fall to, if they keep hiking rates 25 basis points 50 basis points every meeting into summer we'll be at two percent inflation by the summer because we mm-hmm. will be at that point we'll be in a pretty deep recession uh because the fed is just ignoring the data but i i don't think that's mm-hmm. i mean the probabilities of that happening to me are near zero like the odds of an asteroid hitting the world next week, I think, are about as high as the Fed continuing to hike rates aggressively into the summer. OK, uh, well, that kind of brings us to prediction number three. Uh, the economy will avert a deep recession. Right. And that's dependent on on the Fed. It's dependent on my assessment mm-hmm. of the yep. Fed. The Fed is going to hike rates one more time, pause and keep them there at that level. I do not believe the economy is weak enough to just crumble, that we really have a pretty strong economy. We've talked about this before. Consumers saved for – we had above average saving levels for 12 years after 2008. 2008 left deep scars. People were afraid of losing their homes. All of a sudden, the American consumer started saving a lot more than they usually do. So we had 12 years of above average savings. And then we had the pandemic where the savings rate jumped to record highs and people got uh, stimulus checks and there was a lot more money for people. Yes, since then, people have spent and savings rates have come down. But even though the savings rate is below normal today, that doesn't compensate. Okay, well, we've been below normal for a few months. Well, we were above average for 15 years. <laughs> so the fact that we're below normal for a few months to me doesn't mean much. I think there's still a lot of excess savings out there. The consumer is still spending very robustly. You can see that in all the earnings reports. You can see that in the economic data that the consumer is basically taking inflation on the chin and continuing to spend because largely they have a lot of savings and the job market remains pretty robust. And so long as they keep spending, again, this is the positive flywheel. Mm-hmm. If they keep spending, businesses still have demand. Those businesses are going to keep hiring people and or not fire people. So the labor market's going to remain strong, giving these consumers more money, giving, meaning these consumers are going to continue to spend. So it's this positive flywheel that I think is still very much intact and will not break uh, where rates are today. It, it will weaken, but it will not break. And so I think we we probably are going into a recession, but any recession we do see over the next 12 months is going to be very shallow, short-lived. It's not going to really, people aren't going to really feel it that much. People aren't going to be slapped in the face by it like they were in 2008, 2009. This is going to feel like a recession of the early 2000s, maybe a recession of uh, the early 1990s, maybe a very shallow, not that deep, not felt by many recession that is simply going to remove a little bit of froth, do what it's supposed to do, and the economy is going to move on. So I think that's what we're due for in in 2023. I don't think we're due for a deep economic uh, contraction. and so, yeah, I think based on that, I think stocks have a very favorable outlook for the next 12 months. Okay, that got, at, leads into prediction number four. The start of the year could be choppy, but the second half will be up, 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 and away. Right. That, that seems to be one of the consensus beliefs uh, in the market right now is that people are very worried about the first half of the year, but that eventually the Fed is, is going to pause and that that pause is going to allow the economy to restabilize and inflation still going to fall. And you're going to get this kind of Goldilocks environment that's going to allow stocks to head higher. So pretty much everyone's just waiting on that Fed pause. 
everyone's just waiting on that, right? And is mm. it coming in February? Is it coming in March? Is it coming in May? Like nobody really knows. I think it's coming in February. Some people think March, some people think May, but pretty much everybody believes it's coming in the first half of 2023. And then everyone also believes that when that does come, you're going to get a pretty big market rally. So that's why the consensus belief has morphed into choppy first half of the year, blockbuster second half of the year. And what I'm saying is I think it's only going to be a choppy month or two, blockbuster 10, 11 months. So I think that that pause is going to happen sooner than most expect. So the stock market turnaround is going to happen sooner than most expect. And I also think based on the technicals that I'm looking at and the valuations that I'm looking at, uh, a lot of stocks in the technology and growth world are showing bottoming behavior. The NASDAQ has shown a triple bottom over the past two months. That's very bullish. A lot of these growth stocks have been in basing patterns for several months now. Uh, nothing is really, a couple things are, but a lot of a lot of stocks aren't making new lows. That they, They've been kind of sideways and chopping around for a couple months. So that tells me that a lot of these stocks that we're invested in that we like to buy in this environment right now for a big breakout in 2023, sure, maybe they're not going to turn around right now, but they are bottom enough that they've already bottomed. And now they're just waiting like coiled springs for that Fed pod to come, for that catalyst to come. And when it does come, boom, they're going to spring higher. So that's why we're loading up on those stocks. And that's why we think, okay, now is a good time to accumulate, a great time to accumulate mm. because we're just waiting, 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 waiting. And then that catalyst is going to arrive and like coiled springs, these things are going to pop like crazy. So that's our outlook for, for the markets. Um, whether it's a choppy first half, choppy two months, choppy one quarter, can't really say exactly. But I can say with confidence that regardless of how long it's choppy for, the bottom feels like it's in and the potential upside over the next 12 months is, is pretty large. So we're just sitting and waiting around for that catalyst to come. Okay. Uh, prediction number five the S&P 500 will soar at least 20%. Yeah, so pretty much all of the data that we're looking at uh, shows that the market will soar 20% this year, more than 20% this year. Um, you can look at, you know, whenever the stock market has declined by more than by about 20% or more in a single year. What does it do the next year? Average gains are in excess of 20%. So you got that data point. Um, there's another data point that we talked about on this, on this call before or on this podcast before where, okay, the market, you know, dropped, it spent six months below its 200 day moving average and then retook the 200 day moving average for the first time in six months. That's pretty bullish behavior. What happens normally after that? Well, stocks normally rally more than 20% over the next 12 months. So you have that data point. You have the data point of sentiment. When we look at the sentiment, um, any sentiment measure really. So one of our favorites is the American Association of Individual Investors weekly survey. Uh, there were zero readings in 2022 uh, where that survey had above average bullish sentiment. So we went a full 52 weeks with uh, below average bullish sentiment. And that's never happened before. The previous lows were less than 10 weeks in any given year. But when those occurrences did happen, what happened the next year? Stocks rallied more than 20%. Um, you can look at the put call ratio. That is spiked to levels that are historically consistent with 20% or greater returns over the next 12 months. So a lot of the, the, the technical metrics and sentiment metrics we're looking at point to the fact that, okay, stocks are poised to, to rally more than 20% next year. Um, and then more fundamentally is that we really, at the end of the day, what, what determines the stock price is the P multiple times times the earnings per share equals the stock price. So when you look at those two drivers, P multiple and EPS, 
based on the conference uh, board's leading economic indicators index, or the LEI index, um, we look at that as a gauge for how earnings are going to shape up in the next 12 months, because that has historically been a very good gauge for how earnings are going to shape up over the next 12 months. And where that's at is it's shallow negative, but not deep negative. And we think it can bottom around shallow negative. So if it can, then that probably means earnings may not even fall this year, but if they do fall, they'll fall between 5 to 10%. So you're going to get a 5 to 10% hit at most on EPS in 2023. Meanwhile, as we said earlier in this, in this podcast, when inflation crashes, P multiples expand. So you're going to get P multiple expansion in 2023. And historically speaking, when inflation crashes, each point of inflation leads to about each point of inflation decline leads to about a point of P multiple expansion. So if you do the math on that, then you're probably going to get 20 to 25, maybe 30 percent. So 20 to 30 percent PE multiple expansion in 2023, you put that with five to 10% earnings decline, and you're looking at, you know, 15, 20, 25% gain in stock prices in 2023. So we ultimately think that P multiple expansion will offset EPS compression if there is any in 2023. And that's going to lead to, based on our numbers, at least a 20% rally in stock. So everything we're looking at tells us stocks are going to rally 20% in 2023. Whether or not they drop in the, in the beginning part and then rally big in the end, or they just rally straight. We believe stocks well, stock prices will be 20% higher by the end of the year, at least 20% higher by the end of the year. All right. S&P at at least 20%. Uh, your prediction number six, the NASDAQ will soar at least 30%. Right. So we know that the NASDAQ is essentially a high beta play on the S&P. So if the, if the S&P is going to soar 20%, NASDAQ is probably going to soar more than 20%. That's just how these things work. We also know that tech outperforms when Fed pauses happen. So you look at those historic, you know, historically speaking, you look when the Fed pauses a rate hike cycle, what happens over the next 12 months, the S&P rallies, the NASDAQ always rallies more. So you, we have those historical data points. And then pretty much, again, talking about all the other things we've talked about before, whether it's when the S&P has a bad year down more than 20% in a single year, when the S&P retakes its uh, six month or its 200 day moving average after spending more than six months below it, when sentiment is this negative, when the put call ratio is this high, you look at all those things, S&P rallies more than 20% over the next 12 months. Guess what NASDAQ does? It rallies more than 30% over the next 12 months. So all the historical averages we're seeing based on the, 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 the precedent we're seeing today uh, suggests that the S&P will rally 20, but the NASDAQ will rally 30. That's also mm. especially true when you consider you know, the valuation impact that happened in, in 2022. 2022 was a story of P multiple compression, and the P multiples got compressed the most in the tech sector. It also reasons then that once we get 2023 as a year of P multiple expansion because inflation is collapsing and the Fed's not going to hike rates aggressively, then the P multiples that got compressed the most in 2022 are going to be the ones that expand the most in 2023. So if you kind of do the math there too, in our heads, it works out to at least a 30% gain in the NASDAQ and tech stocks in, in 2023. Um, so we just think a lot of the data is suggesting that tech stocks are going to be massive winners uh, over the next 12 months. That is definitely a, a contra belief uh, in the market. It goes all against what 2022 was, a year of massive tech underperformance and cyclical outperformance. But again, as we kind of been saying many times in this podcast, the inputs to the economic model are going to change 180 degrees in 2023. Mm. 2022 was a year of rising inflation, rising interest rates, rising treasury yields. 2023 is going to be a year of falling inflation, falling interest rates or plateauing interest rates and falling treasury yields. 
If you change the inputs of the economic model 180 degrees, it reasons then that the outputs of that economic model are going to change 180 degrees too. So we believe that what worked really well in 2022 will not work well in 2023. And what did not work well in 2022 will work really well in 2023. Tech didn't work well at all in 2022. <laughs> the biggest loser. That's why we think it's going to be the biggest winner here in 2023. We think we're at that inflection point where the underperformers will become the over or the outperformers. How high do you think the S&P and the NASDAQ can go? Well, yeah, I, I, like I said, I, I think at least 20% higher on the S&P and at least 30% higher on the NASDAQ. And then the how much higher than that will depend on how how fast inflation can fall and how strong the economy um, stays in, in the second half of the year. Um, I, I I can't really give a direct outlook for that right now, but I think that there is a potential for things to be pretty pretty blockbuster. I mean, maybe a 30% gain on the S&P and maybe a 40% gain on the NASDAQ. I, I think things could get pretty hot uh, in the second half of this year. All right. Uh, prediction number seven, Bitcoin will make a run for $100,000. Right. Yes, yes. That's, um, that, that's a bold one. That's a bold one, but we, I, I, think it's definitely, one, yeah. <laughs> I think it's definitely true because when you, when you look at what the crypto markets are doing, and I'm just pulling up my notes on this real quick, because mm-hmm. I ran a, a pretty, I don't know, I, it was actually like three weeks ago, I ran an analysis on it, and that's when I became pretty convinced that cryptos are going to have a, a pretty big rally over the next, um, next few months. But, um, you know, the, the big bull thesis here has been, okay, it's it's a risk asset. It's a risk on play. When the Fed turns the the, the press printer on, the, the money printer on, then boom, it, it rallies. And when the Fed turns the money printer off, uh, Bitcoin gets gets crushed. Um, so obviously, we think that in 2023, the Fed's not going to turn the money printer back on per se, but they are definitely going to stop constricting the economy and raising rates in the way they've done in 2022. And that pause systematically caused rallies in stocks, where we think it's going to cause a big rally in in crypto assets as well. So the numbers here are that the the typical crypto winner lasts about, let's see, 50 to 60 months. So we've had multiple crypto winners before. So we have multiple precedents here. And the typical crypto winner lasts about 50 to 60 months and takes Bitcoin down about 80%. At last check, we were down about 75% over 58 months. So we're right within the bounds of a typical crypto winter bottom, down 80% over 50 to 60 months. We're down 75% over 58 months. So that's very consistent with the bottom of a crypto winter. Point number two, those bottoms tend to happen about 12 months before Bitcoin happening, every single time. Bitcoin happening 12 months before that, that's when that bottom usually happens. Where are we right now? The next Bitcoin happening is in, I believe, April. It's in the first quarter of 2024. So that brings us to the first quarter of 2023 is 12 months before. So that's another thing that would make it consistent with a with a crypto uh, w- winter bottom. We're down about 80% over 50 to 60 months. We're 12 months before having Those things are all, like if you're kind of lining up the ducks here, mm-hmm. it's starting to look pretty good because, you know, duck number mm-hmm. one, we're Eighty percent. Duck number two. We're fifty to sixty months into this. Duck number three. We're twelve months before having. It's like, oh, okay. This is starting to have all the formations of a typical crypto winter bottom. And then you throw on top of that the fact that okay, 
crypto prices tend to model money supply growth. So when money supply growth is rising, crypto prices rise. When money supply growth is falling, crypto prices fall. Money supply growth will probably reaccelerate, rise again in 2023. So that's another duck that's lined up. So you're seeing all of these things that are lining up that are consistent with a, a bottom in, in crypto prices. So here's the thing about you know making a run for 100K. Well, what tends to happen, previous crypto winners, we bottom 80% down, 50 to 60 months into a crypto winner, 12 months before having. What do we do in those 12 months into the having? Well, we tend to retrace 38 to 50% of losses in that previous crypto winner. So in the previous crypto winner, if we drop big, then over the, that 12 months from the 12 months before the having into the having, Bitcoin tends to retake 38 to 50% of those losses in that previous crypto winner every single time. So if we rerun that, history repeats here. We're again, we're 80% down, we're 50 to 60 months in, we're 12 months before a halving. History says over the next 12 months, what we should do is we should retake 38 to 50% of the losses Bitcoin has experienced since the peak in late 2021. If we do that, that puts Bitcoin running towards 40 to $50,000 over the next 12 months. And I think that is exactly where Bitcoin prices will run to in 2023. And I think a run towards 100K is totally possible in 2024 because in each new one of these crypto boom cycles after the halving, then crypto prices want to, Bitcoin prices want to make new highs. So I think where we stand today, we stand in the trough of a crypto winter okay. near or at the very bottom with a massive turnaround rally on deck over the next 12 months. So I would be a net buyer of cryptos at these prices. Do you feel that some of the attention that's been brought to the crypto space by bad actors has any impact on this prediction moving forward? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are, are using that as uh, crutches for the crypto market, I guess you could say. And I don't, I just don't see it. Like I just... Mm -hmm. I don't see why that matters, honestly. I mean, the internet industry had plenty of bad actors in the late 1990s and early 2000s. That didn't stop the internet. You know, like, bad actors don't stop a good movement. Every tree has a couple bad apples. Mm -hmm. And yes, I guess this, this crypto tree, so to speak, has had quite a few bad apples and they just keep coming up and up and up and up and up. And it, that's not good for publicity, but publicity doesn't drive stock prices or crypto prices or asset prices. What drives them is, is fundamentals. And I think the fundamentals for cryptos are, are continuing to improve. And I think that the, the risk environment is going to improve for them. So. Um, as awful as what Sam Bankman-Fried did and all those other people, um, I don't think it's going to have materially negative impact on. I mean, why should it? Because one mm -hmm. bad person, you know, was embezzling funds. Like if he wasn't embezzling funds and everything, the, him embezzling funds was not indicative of the fundamentals of crypto. It was indicative of who he mm -hmm. is as a person. He could have been embezzling funds in in, in, a, in a tech fund, in a oil fund, in a whatever fund, right? The fact that he was embezzling funds has nothing to do with the fact that it was crypto. It has to do with the fact that he was just a shady dude. So, you know, mm -hmm. separate the, the man from the movement, separate the individuals from the fundamentals. And I, I think you'll understand that those bad stories should not 
compromise your fundamental belief in cryptos. You either are bearish on them and those confirm your beliefs or Mm -hmm. you're bullish on them and those don't matter. I don't think those are really relevant to anybody's thesis or they should not be relevant to anybody's thesis. Okay. Uh, Prediction number eight, small caps will crush large caps. Right. Yeah. So that's that comes down to evaluation belief. Again, we think that 2023 is going to be a year of P multiple expansion. So we're looking at P multiples to see where where stocks can go. And if you look at the P multiples on the S&P 500 large cap, you know, we're around 17 times, which is pretty historically normal. But you kind of go into the Russell 2K, you go into small cap stocks and we're like at 11, 12, 13 times, which is way below normal. So not only are small cap stocks trading the significant discount to large cap stocks, one of the biggest discounts ever, but small cap stocks are also trading pretty much at their lowest valuations ever. You have to go back to 2008 to find valuation multiples this low on small cap stocks. Meanwhile, large cap stocks are trading just kind of in line with their average uh, long-term valuations. So from that perspective, it looks like if 2023 is the year of P multiple expansion, most of that multiple expansion is going to happen in the small cap world. Large caps probably get a few points of P multiple expansion, but small caps can get five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 points of P multiple expansion. So you're talking some really big rallies in the small cap world. This prediction is not a knock on the large cap stocks. I think that they can do well in 2023, rising tide will lift all boats, but I think small caps will be relative outperformers. And that also explains or it's it's a byproduct of the behavior of 2022 2022 everybody was afraid of a recession everybody was afraid of inflation when people are fearful they pile into safe bets and they get out of risky bets large caps are safe bets so everybody piled into large caps small caps are risky bets so everyone got out of small caps now in 2023 if the economic environment improves the outlook improves because the fed pauses because the economy stabilizes then that shift from small caps to large caps that happened in 2022 mm. should rebalance. So you come out of large caps and into small caps. So I think you're going to get a rebalancing of the large cap, small cap um, uh, portfolio. And I think that's going to cause small caps to outperform large caps over the next 12 months. Okay. Uh, prediction number nine, the housing market will stage a big rebound. Yes, I think that there is tremendous, 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 excuse me, I think there is tremendous pent up demand on the sidelines for the housing market right now that, you know, I'm in the demographic and, and you are as well of the core prospective home buyers in America today. We're talking people between the ages of 25 and 40. That demographic is the core of home buying demand today. And I can tell you from personal experience, and you probably can too, there are so many people that have saved up a ton of money in that demographic that are just waiting for mortgage rates to fall over to rush back into the market. They mm-hmm. saved up a bunch of money through, you know, because all these people put off buying a home in 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019. And during that time, they lived with their parents. So they were saving money. They were getting paycheck increases, paycheck increases, raises. They were landing new jobs. They were uh, getting promotions. They started making more money. They're saving more money. The pandemic hit. They got stimulus checks. They invested. They made some money. They've invested in cryptos. They made some money. So all these people now, they, their nest eggs are growing. They have a large cash pile to spend on a home because they've been saving for a home. Then mortgage rates went crazy and they were like, oh gosh, no, I can't, 
I can't finance a million dollar home at, at seven, eight percent. Like that's, that's ridiculous. So they went to the sidelines, but they didn't go away. They just went to the sidelines. So I think you have millions of Americans out there with 200,000, 300,000, $400,000 just saved up in the bank waiting, 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 waiting for mortgage rates to come back to 6%, 5%, 4%, which I think they will do in 2023 as the Fed pauses and as Treasury yields come in. As those mortgage rates come in to 5%, 4%, 3%, all of this pent-up demand is going to come streaming, flooding back into the housing market, and it's going to cause massive housing market stabilization, which will cause, I think, home builder stocks to do very well in 2023. I think it will cause housing-related stocks to do very well in 2023. Again, this is a sort of the shifting 180 degrees. What worked really poorly in 2022, I think, will work really well in 2023, and that's especially true for housing stocks. So I'm, I'm really bullish on the housing market over the next 12 months, stabilizing and rebounding with much more vigor than what people expect. All right. Um, and your final 2023 prediction, certain high growth tech stocks will rise a thousand percent. Yep. And that comes from historical precedent. Go back to the last time the market had a really bad year, dropped more than 20 percent in a year in 2008. What happened in 2009? Stocks soared. Certain high growth tech stocks, I think what, about a dozen high growth tech stocks soared more than 1,000% in 2009. Go back to 2002, market dropped 20% in that year. What happened in 03, stocks soared. Certain high-growth tech stocks soared 1,000% in that year. I think it was about 20 high-growth tech stocks that soared about 1,000% in 2003. So when, when you look at the historical precedents here, if the market does rebound in the way that I'm expecting it to rebound in, 2020, in 2023, then what is reasonably going to happen, without a doubt, is certain high growth corners of the market, the risk on corners of the market that have been absolutely washed out, stand a chance to rise a thousand percent next year in 12 months. That has happened before. It is what happens when the market rebounds after a big drawdown. So if the market rebounds after this big drawdown in 2023, then it's going to happen again. Right. Like we can't say, oh, OK, the market's going to soar 20 percent next year after a big bear market uh, retreat and you're not going to have any stocks rally more than a thousand percent. That just doesn't happen when the market rebounds after a big drawdown. Certain corners of the market rally a thousand percent in 12 months. That is what happens. And I think the corner of the market that's going to rally a thousand percent or where you're going to find those thousand percent winners rather uh, is in the high growth arena, because that's the most rate sensitive arena. That's the most economically sensitive arena, and that's the arena that's been hit the hardest. So if you're looking for a rebound, go to the things where the rubber band's been stretched the farthest, and it will snap back the fastest and most furious, and that's in the high-growth corner. So I really believe some stocks will rise 1,000% over the next 12 months, and I believe 90% of those stocks will be found in the high-growth corners of the market. All right. Well, there you have it. Luke's 10 big market predictions for 2023. That wraps the predictions, but we do have some fan questions to catch up on. Uh, starting with Tels7, what's your take on Microvast Holdings, MVST? They are an EV and ESS lithium-ion battery producer. Revenue is growing year over year, and the balance sheet isn't too shabby. But how do their products compare to, against Fluence, contemporary Amperex technology, and Panasonic? Uh, Microvast. Yeah. I mean, I've looked at them before. I'm not super familiar with the company. Um, I can't give you a real in-depth analysis of how their products hold up against, um, 
against competitors' products. But what what I can do just by looking at the balance sheet, because we, I think when you look at a stock that's trading at a dollar fifty three, you have to think, okay, the market is thinking bankruptcy potential. The market is not, regardless of the the potential of the product, the market is mm. concerned about bankruptcy potential. That's that's the only reason the stock will find itself at a buck fifty three. And I see why the market's concerned about that because I'm looking at this, I'm pulling it up, and I'm looking at a market cap of four hundred seventy five million dollars. With cash of 296 million and debt of 177 million, so you're talking about a net cash balance of about 90 million. Uh, sorry, about uh, about 120 million. But cash burn, free cash flow over the past 12 months is negative 211 million. Free cash flow next year is expected to be negative 168 million. So they're going to burn through all their cash by the end of next year. That's not exactly a bullish. Um, outcome and unless the rate environment gets a lot better which i think it will get a lot better um but i just think there are probably better bets in in the ev battery space than a company that is holding on for dear life at, at this moment so i i would i'm not bullish on microbass i wouldn't this is not when i say stocks that could soar a thousand percent in the high growth corner this is probably not one of them so i'm i, I would not spend too much time with mvst right here okay uh next question from sterling campbell I know you guys like Fluence, but what are your thoughts on STEM? Do you feel it would be redundant to invest in both? Uh, no, I don't think it's redundant at all. I, I like STEM a lot. STEM is is, is utilities, uh, scale energy storage, like Fluence. I think Fluence is more of a hardware play. Fluence is at Fluence IQ. But the reason to buy Fluence is because they are just the leader in lithium-ion hardware better, battery energy storage systems. And the reason to buy STEM is because they're the up and coming player in that space with a very unique AI software offering. Mm -hmm. So I view STEM as more of a software play. Fluence is more of a hardware play. Fluence as the established leader called a blue chip bet on energy storage. STEM is more of a high risk, high reward plan energy storage. I think it makes sense to pair both of them. I, I like what's going on with STEM. I think it's a very strong company. Um, and I don't think it's redundant to own both it and Fluence. Okay. Uh, King Gerald is wondering what your thoughts are on NNDM. Uh, Nano Dimension, a uh, little 3D printing company. Um, yeah, I, I like what's, I mean, again, this is kind of like Microvast. I've researched the company before. Uh, it has potential, but I, it's since fallen off my radar because I've become more selective in the high growth arena after the big, big uh, mm. whipping that's happened in the industry. And this is one of those where I've kind of fallen off the bandwagon a bit in the nano dimension. So I can't say too much about it, but it does have a very strong balance sheet. And I think the stock is, I mean, at $2.31, you know, and I say when it's in that buck fifty, two thirty, you know, below $5 range, you got to look at the balance sheet. The balance sheet here is, is very favorable. So I think that if you're looking to make a high flyer bet in this space, um, and NNDM looks Given the balance sheet strength, I think it looks pretty pretty decent here. Okay. And our last question from Ben. Uh, with Fisker, what are your thoughts on not being eligible for the 7,500 tax credit because they are not being built in the U.S.? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a headwind. But even without that $7,500 tax credit, it's still one of the cheapest electric SUVs in market. It'll still launch at one of the lowest price points for an ESUV. And so I think that the tax credit will help. Not having it will hurt, but it's not a thesis breaker. The thesis here is that Fisker has developed a very unique business model, which allows it to cost effectively produce high quality electric vehicles. And that is allowing it to 
launch high quality electric vehicles at industry low prices. Um, even without the $7,500 tax credit, it is still going to launch the Fisker Ocean at a very, very, very low price point, an industry low price point for an electric SUV. So yes, don't like the fact that it's not a beneficiary of that of that tax credit, but not a thesis breaker to me. I, I enjoy I like the thesis of the business model allows it or enables it cost advantages, cost production advantages over peers. Um, and I believe that the next leg of the electric vehicle revolution is going to be driven by cost, not quality. And so I think that that makes Fisker, it puts Fisker in a leading position to win market share over the next 12 to 24 months. And I, again, I think this all ties back to Tesla is losing market share. You know, Tesla just had their delivery report, uh, missed estimates by a mile, stock dropped 13% today. Things are not pretty at Tesla right now. That's the brand's getting politicized. Um, the, uh, things are just not looking good. But the consumer interest in electric vehicles is still very, very high. So I don't think Tesla's failures are emblematic of an EV industry that is wavering right now. Mm. What it means is that there's a lot of market share they're going to lose over the next months that's going to be up for grabs. And I think a lot of those people are going to be buyers of Fiskers, going to be buyers of Rivians, and going to be buyers of Lucids. That if you're buying a Tesla, it's because you – you yeah, sure, some people will go to Ford electric cars. Some people will go to GM electric cars. I get that. But I really believe brand is an important thing here. And people bought Tesla in the beginning because it just wasn't one of the traditional auto companies. It was new. It was sexy. It felt like you were a part of something that was not just you know Ford pumping out another car. And so I think a lot of the people in the Tesla buyer pool – are of the opinion, I don't want an electric Ford. I don't want an electric GM. I don't want an electric Volvo. I I want a Rivian. Like I want something different. I want a Lucid. I want a Fisker. And so I think that a lot of the potential buyers of Tesla are going to migrate to those three. And it's going to be a huge tailwind for those three stocks. So even though they've been selling off with Tesla recently, they are all historically very, very oversold here, very, very undervalued. I'd be a big buyer of Rivian, of Lucid, and of Fisker uh, amid this Tesla blowout because I actually think Tesla's failures are their wins so or potential wins over the next 12 months. I'd be big buyers of those stocks. All right. Well, great insights for our listeners and HGI investors. As always, Luke, any last words before we wrap today? Yeah, I mean, we're we're in 2023, man. That's crazy. 2023. <laughs> man, yeah, time's flying. It's it's the I'm a basketball guy. So for me, this is the Michael Jordan year. This is the LeBron James year, and that means it's going to be a good year. You you can't have a bad MJ year. You can't have a bad LeBron <laughs> year. So, um, in all seriousness, I do think that 2023 is is going to be a fantastic year for patient investors. I know 2022 was Boom, 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 slapped us all in the face and was a terrible year. But um, these things happen in cycles. You know, bad follows good, good follows bad, and that's just how it runs and will run forever. So I really think 2023 is going to be a fantastic year for, for investors. And we're doing everything we can to put ourselves in a position to capitalize on the potential gains and look past the headline risk and actually find opportunities that can soar a thousand percent over the next 12 months. So I, I'm very excited about what 2023 can bring. Uh, from an investment perspective. And I hope it brings a lot of um, happiness and wealth in your personal lives as well. Um, because again, that's what's, that's what's more important is happiness with friends and family.
<laughs> Absolutely. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. Please, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, leave them in the comments section. We love to hear any feedback on any topics you'd like us to cover. And as always, to see if we can answer any of your burning questions. As always, please don't forget to like and subscribe to see how these predictions play out over the course of this new and upcoming year. And until then, bye, all.